We're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. And we're uh, actually only going to be doing the first 23 verses of the chapter. If you look at it, uh, this is one of those really long chapters that you encounter uh, when you're going through Old Testament narrative books. So I think the entire chapter is 49 verses long, but we broke it up here because uh, there's some really good stuff to focus on here in the first half. So where are we? We're, we're actually in our third week of a, of a series that we're calling Eternal Hope, a study in the book of Daniel. And, and what, we're, what we're trying to ask is, what does it mean to have eternal hope? You know, what, our, what we see is that our Bibles teach us, specifically in the book of Daniel that he wrote while in exile from Jerusalem, we see that our temptation is to find hope in all sorts of other things, in, in our physical security, in our accomplishments, in our well-being, in our reputation, in our finances. But I, I'm pretty comfortable saying none of those are truly hopeful. At a certain point, it will never be enough. And, and none of those are long-lasting or permanent or even eternal. We believe that eternal hope is in an eternal God and what he has promised to do for his people. We believe that God acts for the goodness of his people and for his ultimate glory, and he does that from the cover to cover of human history, from the start to the finish of our Bibles. But even with that hope, an eternal hope, we as Christians need to learn how to, how to respond to situations where it feels like, frankly, everything is falling apart, where, where it feels like the bottom has fallen out. And our study today in the book of Daniel shows how he and his friends respond to a true crisis. To a life or death situation. And, and what we're going to try to ask and work through is, is how does his response differ from what most people might have done back in his time or even in our day today? You know, we're going to see that his faith is what drives his response, even in the turmoil of a chaotic situation. So today, with this idea of, of chaos or, or pain or, or uncertainty or darkness, that, that's the one I kind of landed on, we're going to call the sermon today a glimmer in the dark, a glimmer in in the dark. So a uh, random question for everyone. Uh, does anyone here like scary movies? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it'd probably be pretty small in, in a church here. Okay. I'll admit I love scary movies. Uh, I love watching them. Uh, and especially this time of year, as we get close to Halloween, there are all sorts of good scary movies on. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of people don't like scary movies is because filmmakers actually use a lot of really cool techniques and tricks that uh, scare our brains more than it even scares our emotions. And so one of these, one, one of the tactics that's used often is this idea called negative space. So if anyone here is a photographer or something, they might know what negative space is. So our brains, when we look at something on a screen, on, on a television or on a, on a movie screen, we really like our subject to be right in the middle, well-balanced. We like good lighting. We like to know what's going on around them. And, and scary movies do the exact opposite. They're willing to let a huge chunk of the screen be blank or even dark and, and just let, let it sit there like that for a little while. And get, well, guess what? That darkness, that lack of seeing, our brains hate that. You know, we hate not knowing what is coming next. We, we, we just don't like knowing that there might be something bad out there or, you know, what it's doing or what it might even look like. And I think that's because at a, at a level far deeper than any scary movie, something that really makes us uncomfortable or even scared is not knowing what's going on in a tough situation. It's not having the right thing to say or even to know what's going to happen next in your own life. And that can cause us to do all sorts of things. It could cause us to panic. It could cause us uh, to respond with different coping or defense mechanisms. When our brains tell us that we should feel a sense of danger, our instinct is always to react. That's a human reaction. But for the Christian, the, the, the ones who have an eternal hope in Jesus, 
our reactions are supposed to be a little bit different. The temptation might be to respond just like everyone else, you know, maybe to, to bluff or, or lie your way out of a situation or, or to maybe just hunker down and hide and, and hope that, you know, the moment passes you by and you're not found out. But, but a Christian response, even in a moment of true uncertainty or even legitimate danger, is to be able to say, I'm not going to be eaten up with worry about this situation. I, I will obey God and trust that he is good to me in all circumstances. In fact, our call is to praise God and to worship him for what he has done in our lives, even if it feels like we're in the midst of turmoil or pain. And if you're here today and might not consider yourself a Christian or, or, or a follower of Jesus, I just want to say, first off, thank you for being here. You know, I'm honored to be here with you today. And, and while we work through this idea of how Christians are called to respond to crisis, I hope you hear that, you know, we're, we're not saying these truths apply to us because we've somehow got it all figured out or, or you know, we're somehow better than non-Christians. Not at all. When, when we talk of eternal hope, that hope is grounded in the knowledge of our eternal and wonderful, wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is better in every way than anything else that we want to put our faith or our trust or our hope in. He is worthy of our highest praise because he did what you and I could never do. He could give us a true hope, even to those who are still lost in the dark today. But I digress a little bit. We, we can we'll have plenty of time to dive into the text, but for now, uh, I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the, the chance to spend time in your Word. We thank you that you have spoken to us clearly and definitively through uh, the, the Word given in our Bibles. God, open our hearts. Let, let us be receptive to the truths that are within um, I just pray that I, as I do every time, that I, you just remove me from this process. Let, let your spirit speak powerfully to your people. And let us just leave today knowing you a little bit better, but more in love with you than when we first came in. Father, we love you so much. We trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, like I said, we're in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1 today. And it's good to remember exactly where we are in the story up to this point. So Daniel is one of the first wave of Israelites who have been deported from Jerusalem to Babylon, which is the mightiest and greatest empire in the world at that time. And remember, the Babylonian method of, of taking prisoners, like Tristan was saying, is, is to bring them out of their own territory, bring them into Babylonian territory, and slowly assimilate them while still letting them practice some cultural or religious observances. We saw that last week as well, where Nathan did a great job preaching through Daniel 1. And, and we see that Daniel and his friends, who we will come to know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, that have these alternate names here, we'll read them in just a second, uh, that they were able to train in a program, in a Babylonian program, to become a wise man, to be able to advise the king, but they were asked to keep and maintain a distinct diet. They obeyed God even because they realized that was the only possible choice for them to have. And God responded. He, he helped them thrive when the expectations of everyone else around them was the exact opposite. So we see time passes on. Uh, you'll see that the, the book of Daniel covers quite a bit of time, but we see that Daniel and his friends likely continued on and, and you know, graduated or completed this program and had joined the ranks of, of wise men, advisors to the king. And now our story today is going to be about developing out of that class of people, those who called themselves wise men. So picking up where we left off last week, let's read in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. 
And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with the flesh. So I'm calling this first section today, Grasping for a Light. If we're going through the bigger idea of a glimmer in the dark, we're going to see what grasping in the light looks like. All right, so the story here is fundamentally, the main characters we see are, are Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, and the wise men. But even more at the root, we see that this is a story that's conveying this idea of a power struggle between the so-called gods of the, of the Chaldeans, or the, the Babylonians, and the god of the Israelites. And a unique thing to, to notice here at the start is the way that it, it destabilizes the most powerful character in the story. Look at King Nebuchadnezzar. He is widely recognized as one of the most powerful non-Christian rulers in all of the Bible. You know, he'd be right up there with probably the pharaohs of Egypt, uh, Cyrus, who will come on the scene towards the end of the book of Daniel, and then in the New Testament, what we see with the Roman Caesars. And look at, at, look at him here, and, and he has a bad dream that causes him great distress. This reveals to me two very quick things. The first is just how fleeting uh, security and happiness can be for humans when they are centered around earthly things. This guy had everything a person could ever want, and his life was shaken upside down by a dream that he couldn't understand. He was king of the world in, in a sense, the most powerful man on earth, and this is how quickly it fell apart. When our security is outside of, of anything, uh, it, it's outside of a relationship with God, we're living in our own house of cards, and all it takes is one moment of instability for us to realize how quickly it could come tumbling down. And the second thing I see is the uniqueness of how God speaks in Nebuchadnezzar's sleep. This is a great reminder that you and I, uh, as human beings, have bodies that physically cannot go on with basic replenishment, be it water, you know, food, or here we see sleep. And that's, that's intentional. God made us, made us that way, made us with that need or that dependence because he wanted to point us continually to our need for something outside of ourselves. And he's pointing us to our need for him. So in those moments where we're physically unable to do anything on our own strength, we see that God continues to work and continues to speak powerfully to people, even to people that are not yet his own. And the way that God speaks here is unique. He does it through a dream. Now, the Babylonian system of religious practices and observances is often called divination. 
So if you're familiar with some of the uh, Old Testament prophets, they speak pretty harshly for the practice of divination. And the reason is because they believed that they could ascertain the, the, the will of their gods or you know, the, the fate of the universe by miraculous events like a, you know, a, a unique animal birth. A, an animal was born with two heads, so clearly the gods are telling us something. Or, or the stars are lined up in a certain way, so clearly that means something's going on. And Daniel and the other Israelites, they know that God speaks definitively through his word, specifically a written word. They had, they had Bibles at the time. They had scripture. It's a little bit thinner than the Bibles we have today, but they know that God spoke through his word. But even in the account that they have, in the Bibles that we have, we know that God has spoken to people through, through the night, through dreams, through visions. Go back to read about how God called Samuel as one of his prophets. So this is kind of a sort of an overlap between two cultural systems of of thought. God is speaking in a common language that two two separate cultures would understand because his message is meant for both groups of people. Which brings me to what Nebuchadnezzar does next. He he wakes up, probably in a bit of a panic, and and then he calls on his wise men, the the men that the king uses as as advisors and interpreters of events like this to help him in this moment of crisis. He's in his own sort of darkness here. He's grasping for that light, not knowing what the dream means for him. And he's desperate for his answer. But what he does here is actually unique in the Bible. If you haven't noticed it yet, he tells the wise men he wants two things from them. I want to know what the dream itself was, and then I want you to tell me what it means. So he's sort of saying, prove to me that you can actually read my mind, and then tell me what that means from what you read. He's saying, I only want your wisdom when you perform this magic trick for me. I only want your message after seeing the miracle first. And look at how these wise men respond by saying, okay, uh, just tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And after realizing that they were utterly unable to meet the king's demands, they say, we can't do this. No one can. Look back at verse 11. We're going to come back to this in our last section. But you want something that only the gods can do. But guess what? The problem with, with the gods that we worship is that they don't dwell among us. They don't interact with the flesh. We're on our own here. We're in the dark. This is worse than you know, maybe going to class and being tested on something that you didn't study for. This is, this is going to you know, geometry and be, being tested on geology. This, I mean, like you don't even know what the subject matter is, and your life is on the line here. I don't think we have to work hard to imagine a human response like this because I'm, I'm sure we've all seen or maybe even remember our, ourselves as children having some moment where we're caught flat-footed in either a lie or a a situation where we are doing something that our parents probably told us not to and realizing just how much we kind of fumbled through some sort of half-truth to get out of the the situation any way we could. But it's not limited to children. I mean, this is something that we as adults do even. You know, I'm a big fan of baseball. I'll openly admit it. Uh, And it's really a sport, if you think about it, that has been defined for the past 20 or 25 years through a series of different cheating scandals. And so one of the most recent problems was earlier this year when they learned that pitchers were using this illegal substance called spider tack, a really sticky material that they could use. They'd rub on their fingers, rub it on the baseball, and it would help them get a little extra movement as they'd throw this ball incredibly hard. Uh, And so it was an unfair advantage. And so earlier this year, I think in May or so, uh, one of the best and most prominent and well-paid pitchers in all of the game was just asked point blank at a news conference if he had used this material. And it's honestly painful to watch. You know that the answer is yes, but he's doing anything he can to not say just a lot of uhs and wells. And then finally, to a yes or no question, he says, I honestly don't know how you want me to answer that. 
to a yes or no question. That's how awkward we look like when we're, when we're trying to come up for the truth on our own, when we're trying to grasp for our own light in the darkness. And there's a resolution that's going to come later in this text, but this section, this is meant to be a bit of a tension-inducing section of text. We're supposed to feel uncomfortable because of the discomfort the wise men feel here. They're in complete darkness, and the lives and the, their lives and the lives of their families are on the line. When we think about how this kind of transfers to us today, I think we need to be willing to ask questions of, where do I run? Where do I turn to when I don't have all the answers? How, how do I react when I realize I'm in darkness? Do I try to bluff my way out or buy some time like the Chaldeans did here? Or, or maybe, and, and this is my tendency, I think, personally at times, is, is to try to just hide away and not be noticed and hope that no one realizes I'm not up to this moment, right? Uh, no one will notice if I'm, if I'm not up to the task. And, and if I'm in the darkness, maybe no one else will see me in their own darkness. I, I don't know. You, your mind works in crazy ways when you're in, in this situation. But either way, reaching for truth without the knowledge of God, reaching on our own, our own strength, our own capabilities, it's like grasping for smoke in the dark. It's basically impossible to grab smoke anyways. And when you're in the dark, it's impossible to know if you did it at all uh, in the end. We need the revelation of God to know his will for our lives and, and the world itself. The, the revelation that he has given in his word in scripture itself. That's the glimmer in the dark in order for us not to be grasping for a light. All right, so that was our first point. And it, it was a bit of a long one, but, uh, and there wasn't a lot of resolution to be found there. But we'll start to see a little bit more of the resolution as we move on through this morning. I'm calling this next section, Looking for a Light. And I think we'll see why here soon. Let's pick up in verse 12, back in Daniel chapter 2. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. I'm going to stop there because I think it's good to focus here for a second. I, I called this section looking for a light because it's really a good counterweight to the first section. You know, when the wise men responded with a bit of arrogance saying, give us just a little bit of information and we'll be able to spin it however best suits our needs and our purposes, how, however keeps us alive, right? We see on this other side of, of how Daniel responds, and it's a faith-filled response. He, look what he does. He, and he asks, in a very tense situation, a life-or-death matter, he says, what's going on? What, what, what's this situation? And you see how, the, how it's described in the text? He spoke with, with wisdom and, and tact and prudence and discernment. Those are some of the words that our English translations use here. And remember, his life is on the line. What a great way for us to remind ourselves of a need to respond, maybe even in a really serious situation, maybe a really tense situation with wisdom and tact. The New Testament goes on to call these the fruits of the Spirit, fruits like kindness, peace, patience, and gentleness. Even if we don't know what will follow, Christians should always seek the chance to display this, the fruits of God's Spirit, rather than peddle in false truths or false promises or boasting or harshness towards other people. But then Daniel receives the news at hand, and, and it's objectively bad news. And so let's just try to imagine his reaction here. Just sit down in these emotions and feel it. 
He's been, he's been picked up and exiled from his home all the way over to Babylon. He's been separated from everything that he knew to be the promise of God for him and his people. And then he gets there. It seems like God shows a little favor. He says, no, I'm going to sustain you during this, this training as a wise man, and, and you're going to come out looking pretty good, like, like your God favors you, right? And then it just, and, and now at this point, it just has to feel like the bottom is falling out again. He's about to be executed at the hands of an unstable king because of the false words of some foolish men. This is not his fault. I mean, as far as we can see in the text, Daniel has been faithful to God this entire time, and yet he's going to die for someone else's sins, which we have to admit just reeks of being unfair. But where in the last section we see the normal response is to lie your way out of a jam, or maybe just to hide it out and ride it out, Daniel shows us what a faithful response looks like. And this is hugely important. Look at what he does after receiving the news, starting in verse 16. It says, And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Do you notice something crazy here? Something just outstanding? I mean, go look, go back and look at the order of events. He requests an audience with the king, an, an, an unstable ruler who wants to kill him and all those like him, and says, I can meet your demand. Just give me a little bit of time, and I'll be able to give you what you want. And after, not before, after he makes that bold statement, then he goes to his friends, lets them know what is going on, and prays that God will actually reveal this mystery to him. I mean, what? I mean, he doesn't even know if God will give him the answer he seeks, and yet he's willing to bet his life on it. You want to talk about stepping out in faith? This is it. Daniel knows that if God doesn't answer his prayer, then that's it for his life and for the life of, of his friends and for the life of this other class of wise men. And yet he says, give me time, and I will be able to meet your demand. But then his next actions are, are perfect examples of what we need to do when we're also looking for that light, looking for the light from God. He does two very simple things. He seeks out the company of other believers, and he prays. There's nothing supernatural or you know, extra heroic that he does here, nothing otherworldly, but he relies on the things that he knows God uses to care for his people in the midst of their hardships. And I can let you in on a little secret about the Christian life today. We need the very same stuff in our own lives. Prayer and community should be the norm for Christians, not the exception. We need the care of other believers, brothers and sisters who share their lives with us and then who we turn around and share our lives with. It's no mistake that the language coming out of the New Testament is that we are a family. We are united as, as brothers and sisters in Christ by being adopted by our good Father. And a family, a healthy family, is one that, that loves, that encourages, that disciplines, that fights, exhorts, re rejoices, and weeps together. The Christian life is never meant to be a solo sport, and you cannot make it on your own. Enjoy and rejoice in the community that God has given you. And then they pray. Daniel begs Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here we have their original names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to plead for mercy with him. And a small side note, do you notice who it is they're, they're pleading for mercy from? Is, is it from the king? 
No, no, they realize that mercy is only going to come from Nebuchadnezzar if it first comes from God himself. God's people are meant to be a praying people. From the very beginning of humanity to the end, God wants to hear the voice of his children. And this is most often done in prayer. And he wants to hear from us in all seasons of life, our, our joys, our pains, our sicknesses, our griefs, our hopes, our thanksgivings. But this here is is a particularly needy prayer. It's an acute need here because we're facing a life or death situation. You know, a quote that I came across this week uh, while studying was really helpful. It comes from a a Bible teacher named Brian Chappell, who I think lives in St. Louis right now. But he summarizes this kind of prayer really well. He says that true prayer is actually a simultaneous acknowledgement of our limitations and of our need for God. That's what true prayer looks like for God's people. When we pray, we're not asking God to to turn us into the hero so we can go and save the day. No, it's confessing that we're not the hero. It's confessing we're the person in need of rescue, or maybe we're the villain themselves, and we need the rescue of a true hero. We need God to redeem us, both in an eternal and in an everyday manner. And it's actually from this application, this idea of prayer and community, that I came up with a way to picture this. There are all sorts of images that help display how we are to rely on others, but I think the biblical image that sticks with me the most is when we're described as sheep, not mighty heroic lions, not you know, fish in, in great numbers in the sea, not, not uh, majestic birds of prey, but, but sheep. And if you've never met one, sheep are not really impressive animals, and, and, but I think that's one of the best descriptors we have of ourselves in our fallen human condition. If you didn't know, a sheep that is alone is an unhappy sheep. They're herd animals, which means they're meant to be with one another in day-to-day living. But even then, a mighty herd of sheep is not able to protect itself. It needs a protector. It needs a shepherd, hopefully a good shepherd that cares for them well. So when we start to look for the the light in our own context, let me ask you, in our own low moments, in our own moments of, of darkness, do we turn and rely on the good shepherd like Daniel does here? Do we seek out the community that God has given us instead of running away from it? Do we pray desperately to our God so we can hear the voice of our good shepherd? If so, we're, we're starting to do what's so important. We're starting to find that little glimmer in the dark. We're starting, to find, uh, we're starting to look for the light that God gives. So as we start to make the turn into our last section this morning, let, let's recap where we made it so far. We've seen the, the progressively unstable situation of Nebuchadnezzar and the response of both the faithless, the Chaldeans, and the faithful, Daniel and the Israelites. And what that means is that you can either try to climb out yourself on your own strength, or you can go and seek the true light to get out of this darkness. So let's see what happens in the last few verses this morning. I'm going to read just uh, verse 19 right now. It says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The mystery was revealed to Daniel. I'm calling this last section rejoicing in the light. Look at the wording here. It was revealed to him. Not Daniel stayed up all night and studied really hard and and found the right answer, or not even he cooperated with God and, and they worked hard together and cracked the case. No, Daniel is completely passive here in the action of God. And just in case you aren't sure of that, look at what he was doing. He was sleeping. God spoke to him in a a vision of the night, a dream, in a sleep where he was completely powerless, just like Nebuchadnezzar was at the beginning of our story. What does that mean? It means that God is the primary mover in all of our stories, just like what we see with Daniel here. 
And then when we, when we realize that God is the one that is acting so marvelously, we should do exactly what Daniel does here. He turns around and praises and blesses God over the next few verses. One of the commentaries I came across uh, while studying said that this is likely, the, these verses here, they feel like they're coming from a psalm or something, uh, but this is original to Daniel. Uh, we don't think it came from anywhere else, but it's likely this is about as close as we get to what we would call a purpose statement or, or a reason that Daniel wrote the entire book. So keep that in mind as we go through the last few verses here, starting in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Look at the things that Daniel say, says fall under the control of God here. He controls the changing of the seasons, which is just a poetic way of saying that God upholds and maintains control of the entire natural order, of the entire universe. But he also maintains control of, of persons and peoples individually. And we see that he maintains control of, of the rise and fall of governments just as easily. Human history, both of persons and of peoples, falls under the good providence of God. John Piper, uh, if you don't know him, he's a, a really influential writer for me, just recently came out with a wonderful book on the providence of God. And the definition he gives there is he explains that providence is the purposeful sovereignty the Lord uses to accomplish his purpose in creation. God willingly and, and choosing to wield his power in order to bring his plan to fruition. And then, what does Daniel praise about God as it pertains to himself? It's for, for wisdom or power or might here. And this isn't a way of saying, you know, look what God recognized was truly within me or, or look what I found within myself. I often call this the, the theology of Pixar, uh, but, but the postmodern, you know, idea that we all face is, the, you know, this, this, this movement, this, this uh, ideology that works so hard to say, you know what, there, there is, there's badness around you. There, there are bad things, even evil things outside of you. But all you have to do is dig deep within and find your true self, find your true goodness, and that's how you uh, get out of your bad situation. Christians freely confess that there are certainly bad things in the world, that there is evil in the world. But we also confess that if you turn around and look on the inside, the further and further you dig, the more you're going to see that we're no better. Our solution isn't to dig deeper and, and to find our true selves, to become the light in this darkness. It's to look outside on the righteousness that God gives us freely just by faith in Jesus himself. And how exactly do we know that? That's a big claim. How do we know that Jesus is the one we need for righteousness, for, for a light in our darkness? Remember where I said to remember that particular verse from, from verse 11 earlier, where I said that the wise men, the, the, the hopelessness that the Babylonian wise men had because their gods did not dwell among the flesh, did not interact with the flesh. Let me show you one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, John 1.14, that shows just how different our God is. And the Word, the Word being Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
That's from the Gospel of John. Later on in the gospel, that same Gospel, Jesus is going to tell us seven I am statements. And one of those is, I am the light of the world. When God reveals himself to us, when he shows us what his holiness or what objective truth or, or what his love look like in complete perfection, this is meant to be a powerful thing, an enlightening thing, a, a worldview-altering moment that changes not only how we see God, but how we see everything else that he has created around us. And C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, wrote uh, in The Weight of Glory, this, this spiritual autobiography that was really influential to me, he wrote this famous line. I love it. He says, when he talks about his Christian faith and how it changes your worldview, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Jesus is the light, and he changes the way we see everything else. But it's not just something that we're supposed to enjoy and keep to ourselves. No, knowing God is a marvelous light comes with an expectation. I, I would even dare to say an obligation. We are not to be selfish with our Savior, but we're to evangelize the world with, with the news of him. Evangelize just is a fancy word to say that we're to share the good news of Jesus with those who do not yet know him. Another great verse is from 1 Peter 2, chapter nine, or 1 Peter 2 verse 9, where he tells the church, God's corporate people, the following. He says, But you, the church, are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what reason? Why? Why are we who we are? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. When we realize that we're in the darkness and need the light that only God can give us, we can't be afraid to, to look for it, to ask for it. And our praise should follow him regardless of whether we get the answer we're looking for or not. We're going to see in a few weeks the, the best answer to the question of what if God didn't answer? What if God had remained silent? But, but for now, it should suffice to say that hearing from God should be more than enough to incite praise and worship in our hearts for him. I'm going to go off script just a little bit, but if you want to understand how the Holy Spirit speaks as you prepare a sermon, this morning I was doing my normal Bible reading and I was in uh, Revelation 5, and starting in verse 11, or sorry, verse 12, the, the myriads of thousands and thousands say with a loud voice, listen to this, worthy is the lamb who was slain, Jesus, and listen to the language, how it's so close to what we have today, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It should inspire worship for our God. It should inspire hope, an, e an eternal hope that is so apparent in our life that it forces others to ask, why? Where is this hope coming from? What makes you so focused on eternal matters that you don't seem preoccupied by the temporary things we're all so obsessed with today? And we can use that as just another chance to proclaim the excellencies of our God who moved us from darkness into his marvelous light. Let us worship the one who is wisdom and insight and might himself. Let us rejoice in the light. So as we finish up this morning, it obviously feels like we haven't resolved the entire story yet. There's still a bit more to go, and, and that's what we're going to tackle in the second half of chapter 2. And if you notice, I haven't really focused on what Nebuchadnezzar was so obsessed with and so worried about, the, the content of the dream itself. And if this is your first time going through the book of Daniel, I, I would recommend try to do a little read ahead. Just sit down and read this entire chapter because when we come back to this text, you're going to see there's some imagery that's new and unique and probably a little unfamiliar, but I think it's going to be great. We're going to have a lot of fun going through the last half of chapter two, I promise. But the focus today 
is on our need for the light of God because otherwise we're in complete darkness without him. There are all sorts of reactions to true darkness that, that everyone here is probably familiar with. You could try to run away and hide from it, or you could try to bluff your way out and, and just maybe speak your way out with some sort of semi-truth or half-gospel. But what we need at our deepest level is the knowledge of things as revealed to us from God himself. How do we do that? How do we make that come to fruition? We pray to God constantly, and, and we seek out ways to be active members of the church. We, we, we need to be participants in the community that God has given us, not just ones that we have specifically chosen because it best fits our preferences. And ultimately, we need to praise God, the ultimate source of wisdom and might. He is over all things in his creation, from, from the smallest child to the highest king. We need not fear or overly concern ourselves with, with the passing glory of, of kings or governments or empires who are just as human and fragile as we are, but let us continually turn ourselves to our Redeemer God, the one who saved us, the one, the one who keeps us close to him, the one who brought us from darkness and into his marvelous light. 